Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. It's so wonderful to, to see so many of you out here. I have to admit that I was a little nervous. Uh, Fort Collins is a fun town on a Friday night, and I wasn't sure <laughs> how many folks would make it to a 9 a.m. panel about coal the next day. So it's great to have you all here. I'm Ben Storo. I write a lot about the coal industry at E&E News. Um, and we have a tremendous, a tremendous panel of folks here for you today. Um, you know, coal has been in the news a lot uh, these last couple of years, and especially this this year, we had um, uh, I think it's a around fifteen hundred miners without out of a job, um, both back east um, and uh, out here in the west. When Black Jewel went bankrupt, we have a number of coal companies have gone bankrupt, um, and I, I'm guessing a lot of you, you know, saw the stories coming out of Harlan County, Kentucky and the, the miners on the tracks. Um, but we're out here in Colorado today, and it's a really great place to, to be able to talk about coal because um, if any of you are like I was years ago when I was taking a job at the Casper Star Tribune and coming out to Wyoming, I didn't know that 40% uh, of our nation's coal comes from just a little bit up the road here in Wyoming. And here in Colorado, Colorado, this state that we think of as this great renewable state, 50% of their electricity comes from, uh, comes from coal, and they have these great um, uh, coal mining communities in the western part of the state. So we have Suzanne Teagan here from Colorado State who is working with those communities and who is going to tell us about those. We have Joe Aldina from SMP, who is uh, their director of coal research, and he's going to be able to tell us about the, the larger trends. We've got Rod Godby from the University of Wyoming and one of the great experts on the Powder River Basin. And we have Aaron Over, Overturf, am I saying it right, Aaron? Um, who was really, uh, if any of you were in the room, in this room yesterday with the Excel conversation about what Excel's doing, well, Aaron was right at the center of all of that. And she's gonna tell us about, you know, what we're seeing from the utilities and what's um, driving a lot of these stories that we're talking about. So um, why don't we start it off um, with, with Joe. We're going to have to all share the microphone here. Um, and Joe, if you can just give us a, a, a brief overview um, of what we're seeing with, with sort of coal markets today in the United States. Um, yeah, so to give you a little bit of perspective. Um, Stay close to the mic. Yeah. Put it uh, right near your mic. Okay, sure. Um, so to give you a little bit of perspective, um, the, the U.S. coal markets have been doing better since, I would say, mid or late 2016. Exports uh, started uh, ramping up, um, and uh, declines in, in U.S. coal burn uh, were, were moderating. Uh, that is, we're starting to turn the corner on that, and in fact, uh, globally, uh, coal demand is is slowing and coal prices are down and that's true whether you're talking thermal coal or metallurgical coal so uh, in the US uh, this year uh, because of low natural gas prices primarily um, we're, we're looking uh, we, we project that uh, coal demand in the US will fall by about 80 million 
short tons uh, for the for the power generation sector to about 550 uh, million short tons. Um, we're also starting to see a slowdown uh, in exports, just the, the very beginnings of it. I mean, some of it was uh, related to high Mississippi River levels in the Gulf, uh, and that, that impacted uh, shipments, so they were, they were down because of that. But we believe that shipments should start slowing because the prices of, of coal, uh, both thermal coal and, and just in the last month or two, metallurgical coal, have come off very very hard. Um, so, so in addition to uh, demand slowing uh, at home, uh, exports are starting to uh, uh, slow. I guess uh, we, we probably had we had thermal coal exports uh, last year above uh, 60 million short tons. Uh, we put the figure a bit higher than uh, the, the U.S. Census, U.S. ITC, International Trade Commission. Um, so close to record uh, levels, uh, and you heard certain uh, coal companies talk about exports uh, maybe um, kind of uh, holding, holding demand up for them. Uh, Bob Murray in particular said uh, that, uh, that, that uh, exports were uh, so, the, so good they were going to save, kind of save his, his companies, um, just paraphrasing there. But uh, he, he, I think at one point he had um, maligned some of the environmental regulations like the CPP and then backed away from that saying, uh, well, uh, well, I'll just sell the, sell the coal export. And uh, he's recently uh, missed a uh, bond payment and it uh, looks like he's headed towards default. Our ratings group at uh, S&P rates his, um, his bonds as default. Uh, and so he's likely to restructure through bankruptcy or, or some sort of out-of-court um, out process. Uh, this is Murray Energy. Um, so, and we've, we've seen a number of, uh, so Foresight uh, Energy, which is a major Illinois Basin coal producer, uh, also missed a uh, bond payment and is looking like they um, may be headed towards default as well. So um, there's still, I guess, financial trouble uh, in the industry um, and uh, production is, uh, has been declining uh, by, if you look at rail car loadings uh, in the uh, third quarter, they were down uh, more than 9%. Uh, so uh, production is coming off. Uh, the Powder River Basin uh, production in particular is getting hit hard. Um, and, um, you know, it just looks like we're going into one of these uh, slowdown periods for U.S. coal, whereas the last couple years have, have been relatively good. Um, and uh, just from talking to some people, Today, I don't know that uh, everybody is as close to the market as I am, and, and I don't know if they realize that the slowdown is on the way. So, um, Rob, why don't um, we'll just go down the panel here, and we'll, we'll see how this trend is playing out in different areas. Rob, why don't, can you t tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the PRB, sure. and what you're seeing happen in, in Wyoming? And if you could touch a, start to bring this, like, what does this mean for Wyoming, and what does this mean for... Uh, Campbell County, where almost all of this coal is coming from. Sure. So, so I'm Rob Godby. I'm up at the University of Wyoming, so in kind of enemy territory right now at CSU. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my interest, policy interest, has been in in coal in Wyoming for a while now. Mainly because about five years ago, I was asked to engage in a study for the state. Uh, at the time, 
they were just noticing. We were just off the peaks of 2008, 9, 10, where there were record coal deliveries. Um, and it had flattened, and it had begun to fall a little bit. And so, you know, adding on to what Joe was talking about, we're all aware of the energy transition right now. Um, what had caused this? And the state, because it produces 40% of the country's coal, and more importantly, that's really one of the three legs of the state's revenue model. Um, the state depends largely on energy revenues from oil, gas, and coal. They have experienced booms and busts in, in oil and gas repeatedly, so that's known. Um, the problem was, well, the new problem they were worried about, it hadn't really happened yet, it was just slowing, um, was that coal had become kind of the, the bedrock for funding. Because if you were to look at uh, production from the 1970s through 2008, all you needed to predict it was a trend line. It just went up. And honestly, that's how the state predicted their coal <laughs> revenues. They just followed this trend line that had been absolutely predictable for over 30 years. Uh, it had then flattened, and, and their question was, can we look around the corner and see what might be pushing this? So fast forward through it, um, you know, we identified the, the market drivers for them, but then the clean power plan showed up, and that kind of took all the air out of the room. So here we are uh, several years later, and the state is still trying to deal with this, to, to Ben's point. Uh, there's a certain amount of denial up there. Um, and, and a big part of that is because the Powder River Basin has been believed to be the one place by many people, uh, especially in the Powder River Basin, where <laughs> these problems in coal country can't hurt us because we, we are the cheapest source of coal, period. And, and so people are, you know, you hear the narrative, coal will still be used, and their argument is it'll be coming from the Powder River Basin. So that was kind of how they avoided this. And, you know, the reason for that is that mining in the Powder River Basin is incredibly cheap. The, the mine head prices are about $10 a ton, um, give or take. It is an old joke that one of the former governor's staff used to make that all you need to mine coal in the Powder River Basin is a three iron. It, it really, and, and that's, that's why. So, so there's 40 million, sorry, 40 percent of, of the country's coal is coming out of there. And the big frustration for a place like Wyoming, and what makes it very different, even for the policymakers there to deal with, is that you don't have, in, in the thermal coal market, this close tie between what's going on in the power generation market, which you may see in your state, and what's going on with the mines, right? You don't have the mines next to or, you know, a, at worst, a few hundred miles away from their major customers. The Powder River Basin is sending coal all the way to Georgia um, and Texas, everywhere else. So. Wyoming only uses, in fact, Wyoming is its fourth best customer. Um, and so the problem is, as Joe outlined, is really what goes on everywhere else. And it's out of the state's control uh, almost entirely. But weirdly, they still focus on power plant outcomes within the state. So when, when a company like Pacific Core talks about closing its power plants, which they have just recently, that becomes all the news. And, and they forget 
that the Powder River Basin is sending 93% of its coal outside to somewhere else. And that's really what, you know, keeps the the public services running. One of the things I'll say is that they, they attached education funding in Wyoming, so to get to the local impact, to coal because it was so resilient. It had no cycles. So when everything else, you know, the, the oil bus of the 80s, all those things happened, um, the revenue model shifted to these necessary services will be provided by coal revenue. So in the past couple of years, there's been, it's been very hard to to ignore what's going on, especially in the past six months. I would say that the watershed moment up in the Powder River Basin, now we can debate whether the lesson is learned yet, uh, but really you couldn't deny what was going on over the past six months. We've had several bankruptcies. Um, Campbell County has lost a significant amount of tax revenue there. You know, we've had 600 miners laid off in one day uh, up in in Campbell County with the Black Jewel bankruptcy. You have another bankruptcy at Cloud Peak. Uh, you have so the the it's a small town. It's a thirty. It's a town of thirty thousand people. You have to remember in Wyoming, the third largest city in the state is is the football stadium on a good weekend, <laughs> and it's one of the smallest stadiums in Division One football. So it's it the impact in scale when you talk about numbers is not well outside of the coal production itself is not large we're not talking about large numbers of people a single jam plant will throw out a lot more people out of work than than happens there but it's it's really a community and it's a culture um, through the state of wyoming there you know this is part of its identity is energy production and so what is going on right now has been very difficult in all aspects for policymakers to deal with, from the revenue to the politics um, to just this understanding and acceptance of what's changing. And then the hardest part to deal with, I guess I would say, is that is, it is almost entirely out of their control. The policymakers, you know, the people that you would normally turn to to do something about this, you can't. They, they have no idea what to do. And there's very little they could do, even if they wanted to. So um, yesterday, to, to sort of shift this focus to Colorado, we heard Governor Polis, and he talked about how the, they've actually even established in Colorado an office of transition. Um, so to sort of get the different view of how Colorado is um, is tackling this challenge, Susanna, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how, because you guys are right at the middle of this sort of state's effort to try to make it. Yeah, and I would say if, if you want to. Um, hey, Joe, would, can you grab that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask Aaron to give us a rundown of the. Um, well, maybe. We, okay, sure. Hey. <laughs> I was just thinking, if, if we're kind of going from, from from you know domestic to local, then right, that would so, be the right order. So okay, so I'll, well, I'll I'll ask this question of Aaron because Aaron's working on the power plant side of this, which is as as Rob said, it's really what's driving these trends. Aaron, uh, can you tell us about you know the whole process of the uh, Colorado energy plan, how it came to be, and how Excel, one of the country's largest coal-burning utilities, decided it was going to close two major coal units and install a whole bunch of renewables. 
Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So <laughs> um, the I think one of the interesting things about this conversation and, and perhaps the perspective that I bring is that often when we talk about um, the impacts on on coal communities or the transition impacts, it's really focused on coal production or coal mining um, or the actual workers at the power plants themselves. But there's also an impact on the communities that host those power plants. So those power plants are a significant source of tax base for the communities in which they're located. And so if you're going to be shutting down a, a coal plant in a particular community, then there's a lot of um, pressure or, or tension to make sure that you're doing right by the community that has been the host to that plant for however long. So that's one of the, I think, unique things about the, the Colorado Energy Plan. So the, the XL's Colorado Energy Plan was really born out of a conversation between organizations like Western Resource Advocates and XL of saying, how can we get your emissions trajectory on more of a science-based reduction pathway? So how can we sort of put you on the path so that you're reducing your emissions consistent with what we know we need to do in order to um, limit temperature rise to two degrees Celsius? And what we wound up settling on for this round was retirement of the two units at Comanche Station. Uh, now, for those of you that don't know, the Comanche power plants are located in Pueblo, Colorado, which is about four hours straight south on I-25 from where you are right now. Um, it's a traditionally more economically challenged part of the state, being part of, of southern Colorado. And... Pueblo's two, two of their largest employers are, number one, a giant steel mill that's been there forever and is a huge part of that community's identity about, like, who they are, um, and then also a Vestas wind manufacturing plant that came online um, about five or ten years ago. Um, so we knew these were the plants that we were going to target for retirement, and as part of this sort of regulatory process, um, we made sure to alert the bidders, so the, the people that build power plants and bid them into these competitive solicitations, to let them know that there was likely to be a large um, ability for transmission injection capacity in Pueblo. So basically what that means is you're shutting down this coal-fired power plant. You can stick other power plants there. You can connect your extension cord into that Comanche site at Pueblo, and that's going to reduce the costs of your project. That was a really important signal to give to the market because it encouraged project developers who had projects around Pueblo <clears throat> and within Pueblo County to bid into that competitive solicitation and to build their projects in that host community. So what wound up happening was um, the, the overall resource mix to replace those two retiring coal plants wound up being over 1,100 megawatts of wind, over 700 megawatts of solar, over 275 megawatts of battery storage, which at the time was the largest acquisition of battery storage, I think, anywhere in the country, um, and then 383 megawatts of existing gas plants. So we're not building new gas plants. We're buying old gas plants that have been running for a while and, and then using them to balance out the system. Um, so what's another key component of this was a, nego a negotiated agreement between Excel and that large steel mill that I mentioned to create sort of a custom and really unthinkable um, solution of a 240 megawatt behind the meter solar solution for that steel mill. So this is, I think, this is the largest behind the meter solar installation that I've ever heard of. Um, it 
locks in low rates for that steel mill that that steel mill continuously tells Pueblo are really, really key to it staying and keeping its good jobs in Pueblo County, like they need to have their power um, under control. And then um, that it, it's also kind of an interesting story because those two Comanche coal plants were built in part back in the 70s to provide power to the steel mill. And now you've got a situation where you're able to retire those coal plants and then serve that large customer with a huge sort of custom solar solution. So what, what wound up when you looked at all that together um, and, and the, the resources that were able to be located within Pueblo County, some of those replacement resources, the solar and the storage resources specifically, you wound up in a situation where there was a net tax benefit to the county and also to the school district which was really, really critical because we knew that from a sort of political perspective that this plan wasn't going to work uh, if it didn't work for Pueblo and if it didn't work for Southern Colorado. Um, so that's sort of an example of how you can use the regulatory process to address some of these coal transition issues as they arise. It is not a panacea. You can't fix all of them, but having a utility commission that can specifically account for the location of replacement resources when you're talking about retiring a coal plant, I think is really important because you, if you can locate replacement clean resources within that same community, um, that's going to make the transition so much easier for that, for that host community. Um, and then coming off of the Colorado Energy Plan, I guess to sort of tee it up for what Suzanne will talk about, there were a number of pieces of, of legislation that sought to build on the success of the Colorado Energy Plan. So um, first there was uh, House Bill 1261, which I think is the most significant, which sets statewide greenhouse gas emission reduction targets for the state. That's going to put a lot more pressure on non-Excel utilities within our state to get on a similar emission reduction trajectory and start thinking really hard and quickly about what they're going to do with their coal assets. Um, and then there was also Senate Bill 236, which codifies Excel's 80% reduction by 2030 commitment. But it also has other provisions like, for instance, requiring that utilities, when they're proposing a coal plant retirement, that they present more information about workforce transition for that specific facility. So if you come into the Public Utilities Commission and you say, I want to retire plant J, um, you need to at that time say, okay, there's 38 workers there, 30 of them, we're going to move up to the, this other plant, eight of them, we know we're going to retire, this is our whole plan, and to really improve the information sharing, I think, between the local community and those employees. Um, that was something, kind of a lesson that we learned out of the Colorado Energy Plan. And then there was also House Bill 1314, which is what created the state, the new state office of just transition, which I think Suzanne will talk a little bit more about. Great. Yeah, go for it. Um, I wish I knew a little bit more about it. I know, <laughs> I know a little <laughs> bit more, I guess, of what's, what's written. But uh, the, the office, um, they're doing interviews now, I think, unless... Governor Polis told you all something else. No, he did Yesterday, he okay, did. or whenever he was here, I wasn't. I wasn't there, but um, yes. So thirteen fourteen created the Just Transition Office, which is under the Department of Labor um, at the state, and um, that is going to be. It's just it just funds one person, and so we're not exactly sure of the plan yet. But the purpose, of course, of the office is to um, kind of oversee this whole transition, right? And it's 
from coal, you know, for coal communities and to make sure that they're treated fairly and that they also have a seat at the table. Because no matter who this the person is who directs the office, they have an advisory board. And three uh, of the members of the advisory board have to be from coal-reliant communities. Uh, and so, um, and so, so it, there's a lot of unknowns, I think, with the Just Transition Office, but it's the first one in the country. So given this really um, big challenge for the coal communities, um, the exciting opportunity is that we could do this right in Colorado and we could have a template, you know, for other states to follow. And um, I have, have said that in other venues and people have said, don't, you know, you're not, you don't say that the coal transition is exciting, right? Because, and that's not what I'm saying. It's really hard. It's a, it's a real challenge and it will continue to be a challenge for these communities. But the exciting thing is that we could actually provide um, some, some help and um, and what we were just hearing about um, about you know policymakers being stuck and you know not not being able feeling like they can't help. Well, through this office, maybe they will be able to help, and we're just not sure yet. You know, we're not sure what it looks like, um, but they uh, hopefully will be able to uh, appropriate funding, you know, funds for something that the coal communities need. And like I said, that's kind of an unknown still. But they're trying different methods around the country. They don't have a coal, coal transition office like we do here, but um, there are different things being tried around the country. So it seems to me one of the really important questions um, for these communities is timeline. Mm -hmm. How much time um, do they have? Um, and just to give you an example, yesterday, if you were in this room, you heard a lot of talk about securitization, which is sort of this crazy sounding word, and you're like, what does that mean? Um, but basically, it's how many years the utility has to pay off their power plant. And it is probably the single most uh, predictive thing of when your, your power plant, in a state like Colorado anyways, is going to retire. So... Why don't we start with Aaron, and then we'll just work our way down the, the panel, because Aaron thinks a lot about this question, um, and Colorado passed a bill aimed at trying to help the utility speed up their payment of paying off their debt, essentially, on their power plant. So, Aaron, when, you, when we look at the debt that, is all, uh, that remains on these coal plants, what does that tell us about the timeline that these coal communities have uh, to essentially make this transition? It's interesting because when you talk to utilities, they will tell you um, that there's there's financial life over here, which is how long it's going to take to pay off the balance, basically, of that giant coal plant that you built. But that's a very different thing than operational life. And it's always very squishy about, like, well, what is the date that you're going to shut this plant down? Is it the date when you pay it off? Oh, no, we don't know for sure. It's You can't rely on that. And so it's it's always very amorphous about what is your plan about when you're going to shut this down. Um, I, I think there's a there are some political tensions there because I think, you know, utilities have a set of financial incentives around how they <clears throat> amortize and depreciate, I'm sorry to have to use those words, their, their, their plants and how they pay down those, those obligations. And then also they recognize that coming in and saying, a Pacific Corps, you know, announcement on the third is a good example where you say, "I'm going to shut down this plant on this day. This is my new plan," and people in that community are like, "What? Uh, what you know? Oh my gosh! It's you know, it's it's um, terrifying for them." But yet at the same time, failure to provide that information doesn't really give communities sufficient time to be able to plan and prepare. Um, so I, I think, unfortunately, there's not a clear um, sort of 
it, it, I think it varies from utility to utility. And I think one of the major um, impediments to the clean energy transition that we're going to see is utilities where they are so in debt. There is so much um, cost remaining in those plants that it is going to be financially incredibly difficult to be able to pay them off in a shorter period of time. Or you may have utilities where they not only have to deal with the the costs tied up with the plant itself, but they also, in their in their great and infinite wisdom, purchased the mines themselves and and smushed them together. So you've got now a kind of a double financial liability. So when we're solving this problem, it, it's kind of I've been saying that the the answers are different for every single situation, but the questions are always the same. It's how do you deal with the financial debt associated with the plant? How do you deal with the debt and or political questions surrounding the fuel source, the mine? Um, how do you deal with the host community? Um, so that's going to vary from utility to utility and often from plant to plant. Rob, do you have any thoughts? We're just, let's just go down the, uh, down the why line. Don't, why don't I go last because I think I'm probably... <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, question, actually, um, and it's an interesting correlation between when the plant is depreciated um, and, and the shutdown. Um, if you're a regulated utility, um, when you have paid off your plant, it's been fully depreciated, um, it no longer goes into your rate base. Um, and this is a big thing that um, doesn't get talked about enough, and I, I think it's I think it's actually why we're seeing, um, in my opinion, um, a, a speeding up of utilities moving away from coal plants. Uh, is in, in the case that they are depreciated, uh, it's not in the rate base, and that means you, you don't get a regulated rate of return on that asset. Um, so uh, the utilities, since the beginning of time, in the regulated markets, want to build things because you get this 10% return, uh, or nine, 9 to 11, something like that, whatever the regulators allow. Um, the other thing, th this is compounded by the fact some of them moved into uh, unregulated generation, trying to make money in the competitive wholesale power markets. That did not work out. Um, Wall Street uh, does not want them to, uh, to be doing things in the merchant uh, wholesale power market. So Wall Street loves the idea, if you do have assets that are depreciated, mostly depreciated, if you can retire those and then you can build new generation in the form of wind and solar and these things. So, um, it, you know, it's it's part of the, the economics are now driving the transition. And maybe this is um, a, a, a more cynical factor, but I think there's a real economic uh, economic benefit for utilities. I used to work at DTE, big utility um, in big Michigan, utility in Michigan um, for Excel. If you can take a depreciated asset and replace it with an asset that is undepreciated, you can get a regulated rate of return on that. Moreover, coal plants cost a lot of money to run in O&M. If you're a regulated utility, you get that your customers pay for that operations and maintenance expense. Um, but uh, wind or something like that is a great thing for these uh, companies to build because it's all capital costs. It's not a lot of O&M costs. So you, can, you retire the coal plant, you take that O&M, you stick it in a capital cost, Regulators allow you to. This is maybe a little bit of a complicated argument, but it's um, uh, 
I, I like to talk about it, so uh, <laughs> um, it's important. Uh, and uh, the, so that that O and M from a coal plant goes into capital for a wind plant, um, and you know everybody uh, uh, kind of kind of wins. You get environmental benefits, but but really utilities um, they're they're uh, they're certain kind of animal. Um, that they answer to regulatory commissions and shareholders, and so while they're, you know, they may have some um, desire to do some environmental good, you now have the economics lining up where this makes a lot of sense for them financially, um, because of this this rate-based calculation, and also because of the price uh, of, on um, other technologies is coming down. So the price of wind has come down, the price of solar has come down, the price of batteries is coming down. You have. Um, I mean, we could argue about whether it's at the point where it's competitive with a coal plant, but I think there was a, uh, a PPA signed in California for solar plus storage at $40 per megawatt hour, which is just getting very, very cheap. I mean, a, a, a just the operating cost of a coal plant could be $30 per megawatt hour uh, in, in certain markets, so, you know, not including any of the capital costs. So um, I think that's... Um, I think that's a lot of what's happening now, and why you're why you're you're kind of seeing companies accelerate uh, the announcements of uh, plants. I mean, some of these depreciated coal plants could be competitive with natural gas if there's no carbon price, there's no capital cost to own uh, to to running the the plant. Um, you know, when we run power models, um, these these coal plants could run economically, you know, well through the end of the 2020s, essentially. But utilities are, they have risk that there's going to be a carbon price or some sort of regulation on carbon. So uh, they sit down and they do these integrated resource plans um, every couple of years. Um, and they're studying what's going to happen in the future. And they're now, they're building in a carbon price. Uh, they're starting to realize there might be an economic advantage to retiring this and building new new generation if they're in a regulated environment and the regulator will let them do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, and we kind of, in our modeling, assume a carbon price comes on, you know, certainly not in this administration, but maybe in the early to mid-2020s. Um, and anytime you put on a carbon price, um, you know, coal generation is twice as, as carbon intensive than gas generation. So coal really, uh, those coal plants really, really start to look uh, very uneconomic against gas, even with a few dollars uh, per ton carbon price. So, yeah. So this question, either for Suzanne or, uh, or Rob, I, I sort of think this is maybe the harder question. We've been talking a lot about these sort of complicated utility regulation economics. How does this Actually, what does this actually mean for a place like Craig, Wyoming, or or Gillette, or Craig, Colorado? And, and there is a Craig, Wyoming. So I wanted to just respond um, a little bit. Uh, first, to what yeah, we were just sure. hearing, if that's okay. So, you know, coal plants are closing around the world and around the country. And um, I think that to kind of get to what we're going to talk about next is there's this there's this feeling in the coal reliant communities that it's all from it's policy related, right? It's all legislation, but it's market driven, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, and so we're seeing in red states and purple states and blue states, coal plants are closing everywhere. Uh, and they will continue to close because coal is uneconomical. And I think you're you're saying it's not uneconomical yet, but we're well, it's uh, it's it's really challenged. It's gotten more uneconomical. It's 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 really challenged 
by gas right now, but the cost of renewables is a lot lower to where it's it's uneconomical against uh, renewables as well. Yeah, so solar right now is in the $30 per megawatt range, mm. per megawatt hour uh, range, whereas wind is $18, and coal is higher than both of those. Um, is what is what we've seen. Um, so I work for Colorado State University at the Center for the New Energy Economy. Um, but before that, I worked at the National Renewable Energy Lab for 14 years, and so I still look at some of their their modeling and your modeling. And there's Lazard as a you know when, if you look at the a cost comparison. But if people are interested, I would I would recommend that um, you guys look at the the most current probably the the costs per megawatt hour. Um, and I think we have to be really careful because Erin talked about uh, in Pueblo, Excel did an amazing job, like she said, replacing uh, their coal with solar, at least for the steel mill. And that's incredible. And they, there were no jobs lost in that transition. So they, they did a great job there. But every community is different, like we've all been saying. And that solution won't work everywhere. And I totally agree, building wind you know, is a great investment. And you have those um, operations and maintenance costs that are going to be really low because the fuel source is still free. We don't have to pay for the wind yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's you know that just doesn't work in every community. And you were asking me about Craig and Hayden, Colorado. Those are in Route and Moffat counties in the northwest of Colorado. Beautiful area. Um, and both of those towns, Craig and Hayden, both have a coal mine and a coal plant. Uh, and so they are also looking at what will happen when their coal plants shut down. And they they know this transition is coming. There are a lot of different owners to their coal plants and coal mines. Um, and those owners are need to come together and come up with a plan and a date and, you know, let them know exactly what's happening when because they're different units um, f for the power plant. So they'll probably close down at different times. You want to I, I was interested. Uh, I'm Grace Hood. I work at Colorado Public Radio. I have a question for Joe and also Aaron. Uh, when you were talking about regulated utilities uh, and needing to get, you know, this regulated rate of return, uh, what actually popped in my mind was tri-state. Uh, and I was curious, yeah. hmm. uh, how much of a financial pickle do you think that they're in right now? I, 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 uh, for those of you who don't know, Tri-State uh, sells wholesale power to about 40 rural utilities. Like, yeah, I don't know if I can talk. I think maybe, I don't know if, Rob, you can talk about that. I don't know them specifically. I think it's been really challenging to sell power into wholesale markets across <laughs> across the country because there's there's overcapacity in most places, so, in mean, most power markets aside from Texas. Just um, based on what you see, I mean, what types of challenges do you see them facing right now? Because they own some of the mines that then burns the coal. What are the challenges they're going to face in the coming years? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean the, I mean there there's been a there's been a lot of building I guess of there's been building out of wind and solar. There's also been in in certain markets a lot of building of natural gas plants, and it's just created this overcapacity situation. So if you are in a competitive market, power prices are are down. We also uh, we saw really good load growth in 2018, but it's starting to uh, slow in 2019. So it, it, it's just from, uh, I, I can sort of talk about the, the economics of power markets. They're, they're getting much more challenging, um, which, which is why if you can sell power to uh, you know, serve load to customers and get paid back for it, it's a better business right now than trying to do something in the competitive market. So I can't, I don't know Tri-State specifically, but 
anybody who's trying out that, that business model of selling wholesale power right now, if that's a big part of their business, they're probably uh, hurting. Um, and, you know, the, the, it, that, that's going to mean that the whole supply chain, um, uh, you know, feels, feels the brunt of that from, from the mine to, um, you know, the railroads, and if there are any. But, uh, you know. Yeah, can I just, um, so I think that Tri-State is a really interesting example. Yeah, I, can you give some, uh, uh, just some yes. context of, of who Tri-State is and, and why they're different from Excel? So Tri-State, un, unlike what you would think given their name, they actually, <laughs> they, they actually serve five states, I believe. Um, they're they're a, a wholesale, was it four? Four states. Four states, excuse yeah. me. I thought it was five. So they, uh, they're a wholesale generation and transmission cooperative. So what that means is that um, for any of you who live in, in rural areas, you have a, a rural distribution cooperative that you receive your electricity from. Um, if, if you're in one of the tri-state member cooperatives, then that means that your distribution cooperative um, takes care of the lines that go basically to your house, but they get their electricity and they get that el electricity delivered to their distribution system by Tri-State. Tri-State is sort of like a mother co-op that sits over all the individual distribution co-ops. Um, so they have a, a large, they don't have customer, retail customers per se. Um, they're, they're made up of a variety of different distribution cooperatives and they own a lot of generation and transmission assets. In Tri-State's case, they also own certain coal mines. Um, so, you know, given what I know about Tri-State, there's reason to believe that they have significant amounts of um, unrecovered, potentially stranded costs in, in their coal plants and potentially in their mines as well. Um, because they're not currently subject to regulation by either the Colorado, by the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, there's not the same level of transparency into how their financial system, what, what, it, what it actually looks like in there under the hood. Um, what's interesting about Tri-State is that their regulatory situation, for lack of a better word, is very much kind of in flux right now. So as part of this most recent legislative session, the General Assembly here in Colorado passed a bill that said that Tri-State now has to engage in electric resource planning just like um, investor-owned utilities like Excel and Black Hills. So that means they're going to need to come to the commission and say, all right, here's our plan. We've got 40 years. This is when we're going to retire that plant, and this is when we're going to build this plant, and this is what we're going to do. Um, at the same time, Tri-State has also taken a, I, I think it's unprecedented step, of kind of proactively seeking out regulation by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, so they filed a petition with FERC saying, hey, we want you to regulate our rates. We've never wanted that before, but we really want it now. Um, so you would have kind of a split between the state regulating the resource acquisition process and then the feds regulating the rates, which is how you recover the costs or the resources that are being decided by the states, and it's kind of an interesting um, situation. Now, the FERC uh, petition was recently denied for certain insufficiencies, and so it's kind of up in the air, I think, right now about what their regulatory situation um, is and will be over the coming years. Let me take a quick stab at that. So the big problem that Tri-State faces is the stranded asset problem. They the, the problem here is that they can get power, you could theoretically get power much more cheaply in the Western market and the areas they serve. 
um, going out to the market and buying, say, for example, renewable energy. The problem is they invested heavily in uh, fossil fuel energy. Um, at the time, it was thought to be uh, a more secure way to go about things. And they have captive customers who have a very difficult time leaving this co-op. And so, and this gets to kind of the wider problem of the transition in the West. It's been easier to do in the East and, for example, in Texas because we have these wholesale markets and we have a deregulated uh, um, electricity power sector, which means that you can see that basically market incentives more directly affect the change. In the West... Rob, can yeah. you give in like 30 seconds, this is going to be a huge challenge, <laughs> oh, yeah. just well, for everybody, because it's an important distinction and we see a difference in between wholesale power markets yeah. and regulated power markets. The wholesale markets, there's more coal retirements. So, Rob, 30 seconds. Right. Okay. Well, What's the difference between a wholesale power market and a regulated power market for right. everybody here? Because so, this, so, this so is one of these crazy things that actually matters. It, it matters a ton. Uh, so a regulated, the old model of electricity provision was you are a town, you need electricity, you build a plant outside the town, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to have competition, right? Like seven outlets on the wall and plans and company C is having a sale, so I'll plug into that one this week. Uh, so what we did was we said, we'll allow local monopolies, and the the we being society in general. <laughs> and so we said, you know, this is more efficient to just have one company provide the power to us. And that's how we used to get power, and we still do. Um, <laughs> so I've probably got like five seconds left. So, so it's going to take longer. This is literally than, one of the most complicated. It is. So, <laughs> so imagine that we have what we call a natural monopoly. And, you know, it makes the most sense to have one company providing your electricity. The old market, the old model was a vertically integrated company that had the power plant, the transmission to get to you, and then they distributed it around town. Um, what we realized was that as markets expanded and um, they became much more integrated, the, the grids themselves, they could get power from a lot of places. And so in a lot of places, we deregulated the market. So basically, that vertical integration of plant to bulk transmission line to local distribution, as Aaron put it, they deliver it to the doorstep of the local uh, power company, who then distributes to all you. Um, we broke that up. The locals are still monopolies, so they're still typically regulated. Uh, the transmission system is kind of in this weird area. In some places, it's a public good. In other places, it's owned. Um, but, you know, the federal government plays a role in that. But the power sector um, was deregulated. So in place, you can now compete, and there are markets to compete for the power, and they effectively have auctions. So you just offer how much electricity you can produce at what price they say, this is how much we need. We cut it off there. What was the price of the last unit paid? That's what everybody gets. So that's what we call deregulated markets. Now, the, the old regulated utilities are still these vertically integrated things. And they're, in the West, we didn't get that kind of development. And so uh, hopefully that answers the question without getting into too much detail. But the, the, the transition occurs at the power generation level. And so when you have market forces pushing 
basically, that's what's pushing a lot of almost all of the, the transition that we're seeing in coal. Um, it's just cheaper to do it other ways. Since the fracking revolution in 2008, this just upended the, the power sector. And so in places where, there, where competition is real and, and you have a competitive market, it's been much quicker. When you're in a regulated utility where we have these issues where we built the power plant for the, let's, let's just imagine it's a town with a power plant and some wires to get there. We built the plant to serve the town. It provides a good. So what the regulators try to do is keep the price as low as possible but the town in paying for that, they don't just pay for the price of power, they also pay for the investment of putting a plant there that would serve them. And so the problem is that if you're gonna shut down that plant, as we've already heard, and it's not paid off, somebody's gonna lose here. And so um, the way to think about it is, you, you basically have to imagine that you had a house with a 30-year mortgage and you need to entirely pay it off before you can get rid of it. So you refinance it with a five-year mortgage. You're going to get this really high increase in, in payments, but it'll be paid off sooner. And so this weird thing that happens in regulated utilities is if you want to retire a coal-fired power plant to get to the cheaper electricity that can be produced by renewables, you're going to have to have this short-term period of time where potentially rates go up to make sure that the investors get paid not the investors, the, the creditors who lent the money to build that plant in the first place get paid. If you don't insure that, then the company won't have access to capital in the future to continue to build this capitally intensive system. So I just wanted to point out that this really matters. The, what kind of system you're under is part of what's going on, and, and Joe alluded to this. So there's really three forces that are pushing this movement away from coal. The first one, as Aaron mentioned, was you know this scientific consensus that we need to do something about carbon. So there's a policy-driven um, reduction in carbon that we're trying to achieve as society in, in most places, I'll say. Um, not all. <laughs> not everybody buys into that yet. The second thing is this major trans this major change in the economics of power generation that started with natural gas fracking and Natural gas prices are a third of what they were a decade ago. And so if you're generating electricity, which is natural gas, which just happens to be cleaner, and the plants are much cheaper to build, um, you're at an advantage. In the past less than a decade, we've suddenly seen renewables that were much more expensive. You may remember a time where if you wanted renewables, you could pay extra on your power bill to kind of create an incentive for the power. You don't need to do that anymore. If the power companies had their way, they would probably pick renewables as the cheapest source uh, in many places. So economics are driving this. But the third thing, to, to Joe's point, is the incentive that's created when you have paid off the plant. And this is that weird world of regulation and, and rate-based rate uh, returns and you, what your rate base is that a, power, a, a regulated utility wants to have this capital. I mean, there was this old joke in the regulated utility market that you'd buy a, an office chair and get a 6% return or a 10% return. It's capital. You buy capital, you borrow for it, and you basically ensure that your investors get that return. And so that's what, when a, when a plant is fully paid off, there's no more 
return. That, so what they want to do is they want to build out new capital to get that regulated return again. And so in, in certain places, this makes sense because, as Joe said, the plant's fully depreciated and there's an opportunity here to increase the rate base again of the utility and effectively increase the amount that they can charge the rate base. Um, in other places, though, um, that's that's not necessarily the case. It's still there. And so it's more difficult to get past that. And so we, hey, we really have to think about both. Yeah, I think we want to have some yeah. – got a lot of hands up. Did yeah. you want to make one point before we start taking questions from Well, the- I was just going to say that, um, you know, one, one piece that for Tri-State that's hard is that – it's um, the rural electric cooperatives have a lot longer to go, so their investment right. is bigger. Their upfront investment is bigger with their lines because they are serving sometimes only five customers per mile or something like that. Whereas yeah. Excel, you know, has has people in cities. So, um, so that's a big deal. And Tri-State would tell you that they have thirty percent of their electricity from renewables. That's <laughs> what they would tell you. And so that means buying um, old hydropower from the Western Area Power right. Administration, and they also allow. Uh, their customers to produce five, so their electric cooperative customers to produce 5% of their own electricity, so up to 5%, and so that's usually covered by renewables. All right, so I think everybody knows the rules, SCJ and working journalists first, um, and if you can ask a question, not a statement, I was told I had to say that. Um, <laughs> why don't we start right here? Kathy Kowalski, uh, reporting for Energy News Network. Follow up on the point about the differences in types of markets. How is the transition for coal communities complicated if you're in a situation such as perhaps Ohio, where instead of it being all straight regulated, integrated, in theory you're supposed to have the local monopoly distribution three of the four utilities sort of wink-wink divested by putting it in a controlled subsidiary, but you've got a competitive grid wholesale market, and so you can't get access to the books for the transparency. You know, I guess, how is, how is the analysis different for what you might do to help those communities? Did everybody hear the question? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kick it off. I think Ben is is uh, uh, Ben alluded to this. He said the transition has happened uh, first and quicker, maybe in these unregulated markets, in the wholesale markets, where uh, you get these economic signals uh, faster. So uh, a lot of coal plants have been retired in uh, PJM, for instance. Uh, where the, the economics have changed uh, uh, to the point where gas is cheaper to run, it's cheaper to build, um, and you had uh, private investors you know, flood in and, and build a ton of uh, gas generation, and it's just made, um, it, it's, it's caused the plants to close earlier, and it's also caused uh, coal generation to fall faster. So they're buying less coal, they're producing less coal energy, and therefore buying uh, less coal. Um, so, so that's the, um, you know, that that's the rub. In some of these more regulated markets where they're they're getting uh, a cost uh, recovery. Um, like in the South or in the West or something, they've been slower to move away from coal, and they've just been 
running coal uh, more rateably, you know, less less change to how they're doing things, less new building of gas plants or or renewables. So, um, it it's not it's I'm I'm trying to think it through because it's not always you know if you have a slowdown in uh, generation in say PJM, you know, some of the coal is coming from out west. Some of the coal is, is coming locally uh, in in uh, northern Appalachia, uh, and you know some of the coal might be coming from the Illinois Basin. So the the actual uh, the miners um, uh, are affected uh, differently. But I, I think almost every I, I mean the the PRB is the biggest region for um, uh, coal production and coal production in the power sec sector. And it goes, PRBs shipped uh, to a lot of different places. Um, uh, they have felt the uh, effects very, very hard. Um, some of the other basins, uh, like e even though um, uh, plants in PJM use a lot of uh, northern Appalachian coal and those plants have been running less, northern Appalachian coal has been exported. Uh, Northern Appalachian coal can be used in the steelmaking process, uh, so it's um, the, they have fared relatively better, I would say, up until this point. And that's that brings us back to how I opened up. You're starting to see uh, slowdown in some of these other things. Uh, metallurgical coal prices have dropped um, by. A quarter over the last uh, several months, at at at, at the very least, uh, exports are starting to slow down. Uh, Northern Appalachian coal was going to India. I mean, it, it gets complicated as to exactly what these factors are, but uh, it looks like that's slowing down. So my own forecast is you're going to have less Northern Appalachian coal headed to India. So they're gonna. Um, they're going to feel the effects of that. Um, the, the PRB is much more dependent on uh, power generation in the U.S. for for production, and so the miners are are dependent on on that. So they've already been feeling this uh, maybe a bit harder than somebody in in out in some of the eastern coal fields. I would say. Does anybody else want to take a stab at that? Yeah. Can I just I I. Um, I feel like I should represent vertically integrated utility world a little bit um, because I, as somebody who's worked a lot in Colorado, that's the world that I know best. And I, I think in my experience, um, vertically integrated versus deregulated, I don't think it's necessarily easier to affect fleet transition in a, in a deregulated market. And I think Colorado is an interesting example of that. So I think in Colorado, you've seen two things that have helped to push the transition forward. One is strong state policy. So we had the Clean Air, Clean Jobs Act back in 2010 that led to a large wave of coal plant retirements. Um, and then you've also had things like the Colorado Energy Plan and, and other sort of state policy-driven approaches towards um, clean energy, the renewable energy standard that we adopted back in 2004. Um, the other thing is that um, vertically integrated and regulated utilities are not necessarily um, antithetical to competition. It, this is, and this is like super nerd, but it really depends on how you design your regulatory system. And you can design a regulatory system that powers, that, excuse me, that harnesses the power of markets and competitions to drive value for customers. Um, that's particularly true if you require existing plants to compete against new stuff, which is another thing we're trying to get done here in Colorado. So how you design 
your regulatory system in a vertically integrated state um, really matters. And I think in some ways can do a better job of um, finding the right balance than a purely deregulated state. And I think in some ways it may provide even additional certainty to communities because if you're engaged in resource planning that goes out over 10 or 20 years, you've got some dates certain when you know that these things are coming. I'll just say real quick before we take the question, if you guys are interested in like where you fall on the map of regulated, deregulated, the Energy Information Administration has helpful maps and you can see what your situation is in your state. Yeah. Right um, I'm Eleanor Hassenbeck. I replaced in Boat Pilot today. I actually live in Hayden. Um, and before that, I lived in Craig. Um, so I, these power plants are outside my bedroom window. Um, and so there's obviously, I mean, we've, you've touched on a little bit, but that identity is very core to those yeah. communities. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that sociologic change and kind of are there best practices for the sociology of these coal-related communities and kind of what is the role that government utilities have in, in how that changes? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is that um, it's definitely not just an economic change. It's a, um, it's a cultural shift, right? And so this is, goes to the core of people's identities. And some of the towns were, exist only because of that coal, right? And we, we saw that in lumber towns. We saw, we, we've seen that in, with other industries um, across the, the country. And they've transitioned as well. And some, some of the small towns have survived and some of them haven't. And so um, it seems like the, one of the most important things um, for the coal transition for small, for rural uh, coal-reliant towns is to have, to have the members of that town have a seat at the table in the decision-making process. And so a lot of times that's, that hasn't happened. Um, but they, you know, they, they're not looking for a handout. These are really hardworking, smart people, and they want to provide for their families like they always have. And so one of the things that we hear is that they're not, you know, they don't, they say, you know, you're, legislating, uh, you're legislating the coal plants, you know, to close, basically, and now you're, you're forcing us to take a government handout, and that's not what they're looking for at all. Um, and so having, having the folks who live there, um, like in this just, just transition office, you know, be part of that, the panel that makes the decisions, I think, is really important. And one thing that we've seen is that between Craig and Hayden, right, they're in different counties, um, their rivals with the for, you know, against each other, right, too, like this county versus that county. And th that's one of the, the hard things with small communities is, you know, you grew up and you always went to the Friday night football game. And, you know, these t these towns are now sometimes having to combine or having to maybe Craig and Hayden are going to have to take a Yampa, wide, Yampa Valley wide approach, which is really hard because they've been working, um, you know, apart. They haven't, and they consider themselves really separate, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, but for somebody, somebody here, that's interesting because they're, they both have a coal plant. They both have a coal mine. They live, you know, in this beautiful area in rural Colorado. So it seems similar, but when you go there, you know, it's really not. Um, and one of the cultural shifts that we've also seen is that, so I, I would say um, part of what we can do, you were asking about that, you asked a lot of questions and I think they're really good. I know we, we don't have a lot of time, but one thing we can do is with the funding that should come um, from state and, and like Canada's investing $30 million or something like that in their coal transition and Germany is investing 40 billion euros in their coal area. So we could have a federal plan. That would be great to have a federal policy. Um, but from, from states and from other grants also that are coming in, um, they're sort of short-term and long-term investment opportunities. And for short-term, 
um, the investment opportunities will bring hope for the community. So this is like downtown, installing sidewalks downtown and town beautification and that kind of thing. And it might sound silly, but it really does provide hope for the community. And they know the coal plants are closing, but they don't want families to leave. And then the probably the more important one is the longer-term investment. So providing a bridge wage for um, employees who lose their jobs, providing bridge health care, um, investing in their community infrastructure and um, community colleges. And um, I know there's great work coming out of the University of Wyoming and also Montana State University. I would recommend um, looking at some of what Headwaters Economics is doing uh, with Mark, Mark Haggerty and his group. And they have found that if a small town is within one hour of an airport, or if a small town is with, which Hayden is and Craig, right, and with if a small town is within one hour of um, a natural resource that could bring in tourism, they're more likely to survive. Um, and, and I can talk about this with you more, uh, you know, for a longer time later, but I know we want to get to other questions. Yeah, right here. Uh, Randy Showstaff reported with EOS at American Chief Fiscal Union. So along the same lines, uh, Suzanne, you talked earlier about the just transition and that other things are being done uh, across the country. I wonder if you can just give a quick survey of what's being done uh, from the best or the worst perspectives. Yeah, I mean, so one of the... Um, some examples that we've seen are a lot of it is people taking advantage of their natural resources. So they're usually in rural areas. Um, and in West Virginia, um, a town kind of came together and their coal plant closed and they developed um, a motorcycle tourism business kind of. And so they take people on motorcycle tours um, through the, this gorgeous coal country. But they've kind of they reinvested in this area and now are, you know, they have dollars from that, from this this motorcycle tourism business. Um, but what's missing there, of course, is this tax base, right? And so in Craig and Hayden, um, t the top 10 funders of their schools and their local government are all from the coal and oil and gas industries. And so without those industries, and they will eventually go away, at least the coal ones, um, what will happen to that tax base? So that's a big big issue. Um, and then, so there are some hopeful examples, and then there are some some terrible examples of where the coal plants close and um, the people who own the plants are okay. You know, they, they survive because they have enough money. But for the coal plant workers, um, they don't even get their pensions, you know. And so that's one thing that, that I think policymaker, where policymakers could make a difference. You know, can they require that? <laughs> can they require that local workers are used in mine reclamation and in power plant, you know, whatever they make that power plant into, in some cases, I know in, I think it was Michigan, they're making them into office buildings and things like that. And so um, whatever happens next with this land and these assets, um, could local workers be used? Because some of the jobs are similar. Um, also, money can be poured into retraining efforts. Uh, there's Utah right now. The Utah governor has a program where they're using a three-pronged approach. The first one is they're training remote workers. So they have a month-long course, and you get a certificate at the end to work remotely. And then the second prong of the approach is they, um, and this is just for people who work in, uh, and live in rural Utah. And so the second one is businesses in the cities in Utah um, are incentivized to hire these remote workers who've been trained. And then the third prong is to have um, investment in the rural towns in like the granary or whatever building it is they don't use anymore um, as a collaboration space, as a co-working space. Because one thing that we're finding is that innovation still happens in person. So you can you can do your your technical writing and things like that, you know, by yourself and that's great for remote working, but the actual innovation still happens at the water cooler or in person even if you're talking even if it's with different industries. And this um, this Utah 
you know, approach is is new, and we'll we'll see how it goes. But it's one way that a state is uh, helping by funding this program. So you know, it's sort of a, a space to be watched. I think. Uh, Antonia Ulaskrips fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism. Thank you, Suzanne. That was awesome. Everything Thanks. you just said, I'd love to hear more and more of it. My question is actually on the Just Transition office in Colorado, and this may be for some of the Colorado reporters in the room. Um, it is the first in the nation. It was implemented in May. Why isn't it taking shape? Why isn't it happening? Does anyone know? <laughs> I, so I. I do know that there's one um, commissioner from the area where I work in the Craig and Hayden area. There's one county commissioner who's on the advisory board. Uh, so that's good. Uh, they, they're, start, they're picking the advisory board. Um, I don't know. I know that they've been doing interviews uh, for the director of that office. And I think there is only one person funded right now. Just one, just one person. That's yeah. That's the office, and then the advisory board. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know why it's taken so long. I've, I mean, you know, it yeah. takes a while to hire. I guess. Yeah. We'll do a, a Wyoming question. Hi, <laughs> uh, my name is Tom Morton. I'm a reporter for K2 Radio and Casper. Um, so it's primarily for Mr. Godby. I'm sure there's uh, nothing you haven't heard before, but I gotta ask, what is the war on coal? What does that mean? What effect, if any, is that effect in the coal industry compared to anything else? Okay. <laughs> you thought you were on. Yeah, on yeah. I was just, I was just like lying low. You know, <laughs> I, uh, um, so the war on coal has, you know, it, it's it's purely a political term, right? It, it came in the the decade after the Obama administration uh, came into power, so. The argument by some has been that the, the problem that coal faces is regulatory. And this goes back to kind of those three incentives you might have for transition. The first is policy-driven. The second is economics, which came later. And now we're dealing with the internal things of are there incentives or disincentives in the regulatory structure. Um, so the war on coal is really, you know, an argument by one side arguing that, you know, this would not happen if not for the ideology slash preferences slash whatever other reason uh, that people want to get rid of coal plants, right? So it's an us versus them, and it certainly divides a base into your likely voters and the other people, right? So it's, an, it's a really us-them-other kind of argument. Um, I uh, usually tell people when, when they bring up the war on coal that the war on coal started basically in 2008 with the expansion of fracking when it really hit the market. And, and that uh, the biggest, you know, quote, villains for coal companies are not the policymakers, but actually gas people. Um, but you often see in the politics of this, the fossil fuels are all aligned. So that is an unspoken truth that just kind of goes on out there. You don't mess with our business, we won't mess with yours, even though we are competitors. So you get to the Trump administration. You know, they even... They even announced the war on coal is over because we've been elected was kind of. Um, but the truth is, gas and coal are substitutes. You can produce electricity with one or the other, and, and the market aspect of this is you'll want to use the one that's cheaper. And you know we invented fracking, and we're not going to put that genie in the bottle probably. There are some people here that maybe want to see that or at least control it. But right now, that's a technology. We're not going to forget how to do it. 
Um, so, you know, the war on coal was never about regulation. If we look at what's been driving the downturn and, the, and made markets so tight, you know, natural gas is by far the, the biggest reason. The second reason would be, you know, the renewables and their increasing competitiveness. The third thing is that we've just had flat load demand. So, you know, if the space doesn't get bigger, then that competition just becomes um, more difficult to deal with. And, and so what I would argue then is that, and then, of course, you have the regulation. And there have been, but, you know, we haven't had major carbon regulation, right? It's really the uncertainty that, that Joe talked about that it, they're most concerned about. So I would argue that, you know, really the war on coal is just a way to avoid a conversation about a much more nebulous process called economics, which is, you know, and you can't, you know, for one thing, the side that claims that there's a war on coal often tries to claim that it's also the market-driven side, right, that they're the pro-free market side. So it, it, there's kind of a, an irony there that uh, that's really what's driving this. Your base is being affected. And so, and, and it's very difficult. The other thing that politics really depends on is being able to point at somebody to blame. And you can't really point at anything in particular in a market, right? It's just there. It just is. And so that's what I would argue what the, the war on coal at least means to, to us. I think, Su Suzanne, did you want to say something real quick? Oh, um, <laughs> sure. Uh, so the, um, the coal in the, in, the, in the West, right, the coal plants have, are being replaced by wind and solar, and in the right. East they're being replaced by natural gas. Yeah. Um, to, for the most part, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's but, been there are different markets, and they're yeah. definitely, like you said, they're definitely more because there's there's been more replacement in the east, right? So there's more by volume anyway. That's yeah. yeah. I want to get to some. Uh, we're going to go just a little longer because we started a little later, but um, I want to get to some other questions. We'll go here and then there. Yeah, uh, Justin Curtis, uh, Green Tech Media. Uh, Suzanne, you touched on this, but what about any existing federal programs? Yeah, and other people might know more about this. So the question is about federal um, help support for coal-reliant communities, and I think they do all talk about it. The Democratic, um, and I think probably Democrats and Republicans will all will all uh, talk about this. Right now, I know that there are several there's several pieces of legislation in the works, and I don't know enough about them to describe them in detail. But I did talk to um, a senator uh, who was telling me that what he he feels like could be a solution is to offer something like a pension, almost like a military pension to coal workers. Um, and this would support that, you know, the coal workers and their families um, as they go through the transition. So maybe they're going to retire and maybe, you know, if they're young enough, they'll stay in, you know, transition to another industry. So this, um, there could be help for retraining and kind of skills mapping where you look at the skills that they have and then map it onto a new, an, industry that's available or coming to their area or something like that. So kind of a, the retraining and workforce efforts. Um, but that's not, you know, it's not out there yet. Uh, so people are definitely talking about it, but it's, that one's not out there yet. 
There are federal programs, though. I mean, the, the loans, and, yeah. yeah, grants. So we, we have federal programs for grant support, uh, loan support. Um, you know, the abandoned mine land funds have impact funds. These have mainly gone to Appalachian states, where the you know the transition kind of hit first and hit many people. You know, the most people. Um, but the federal programs have been, and they focus on a lot of different things. They've focused on uh, new technology development. They've focused on infrastructure development, for example, bringing broadband into mm -hmm. some rural communities. They've also focused on retraining. Um, but they are usually driven at the local level. So when it's a grant or it's a loan, you need local resources to actually have uh, a first of all, an ask, and a justifiable ask, and then secondly, kind of a structure to actually make it work. And so the, the results of that, at least from what we've seen so far in, in Appalachia, have been mixed. Um, but, and you can kind of compare these federal programs to what we saw for, um, say, displacement that was caused by international trade. We have actually federal programs to help communities where you know they lose their factories or whatever to international. And the sad thing is that those efforts have been largely unsuccessful. There's been a lot of money spent, and you don't see a lot of change because they typically depend on things like retraining. But you have to have an equal ability to do the retraining and to want to do the retraining. And so mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a really tough um, it's a really tough effort, and and to be honest with you, I think a lot of people would focus on there is a need for potential federal resources to come in, but I think at the same time, in places like Colorado where there's a, a good budget situation, or New Mexico where they have a really large budget surplus right now, there are funds available to actually help those communities in a more locally targeted um, state approach is potentially beneficial. The problem is in a lot of energy producing states, their budget is exactly the opposite. They don't have those funds right now, and it's because they don't have energy revenues. At its end, of course, because they don't have the energy revenues, they can't help the displaced workers um, who are suffering from the energy market changes. Yeah, and sometimes with the federal um, money, they have to, the coal plant has to close first right. before they get the help, which doesn't yeah. make any sense. They should get the help right before the workers are out of work. Um, and you could check out USDA. They've got grants for infrastructure and some of those other things, as well as the National Association of County Officials has also been great in this area. I'm just going to keep it moving because we got other questions to get to, right? Uh, Bryce Gray with the St. Louis Post Dispatch. So in Missouri, depreciation is a huge uh, part of the issue. We're a, a regulated utility state. We burn more coal than anywhere except Texas and Indiana. We got major coal plants running into the 2040s right now, or set to anyway. Uh, I guess I'm curious if, um, you know, just from an economic perspective, uh, do you think will regulated utilities figure out a way to uh, pull off this transition away from coal fast enough to keep people happy? And if not, uh, what could happen? I'm going to take Bryce's question and rephrase it just a little bit because we haven't talked about this at all. Can we, can utilities make this switch fast enough to reduce emissions at the level scientists say that we need to reduce emissions? Erin, you haven't spoken for a little bit. Um, so I, I think 
just to point you back to the Colorado Energy Plan, that was a situation where um, they accelerated the depreciation so that they were recovering the unamortized cost over a shorter period of time, added in all the additional costs associated with retiring those plants and the costs associated with the replacement resources, and it was still $200 plus million cheaper than continuing to run those coal plants. And that's without accounting for any carbon costs or anything like that. So I think even if you've got a situation where you don't have any like fancy financial bells and whistles, there's going to reach a point where the replacement capacity is so cost effective that you can still pull it off. Now, I think in terms of whether or not you can do it fast enough, <clears throat> I think you're going to see increasing pressure from communities that are served by regulated utilities if those utilities are not reflecting the values and needs of, of their sort of franchise towns, right? Um, and you can see that Excel was very much responsive to its customers in making its carbon reduction commitment. They straight up said, like, we're doing this because this is what our customers want. So I think utilities need to be responsive to that. Otherwise, there's a huge risk, right? One risk is maybe you don't get your return, <laughs> right? Like, um, maybe you don't get your full return on that unamortized coal plant, especially if you built it not that long ago and you probably should have known better. So I think there are real sort of policy and regulatory risks for utilities, and there's going to be a balance about when are those risks big enough that, man, we got to just start shedding this and maybe maybe taking some taking a hit on some of the financial stuff, but we recognize that the risk of not acting is even is even greater. Go in the back there. The short answer is yes. In fact, I'm involved in it. Uh, there was a, it, it's, it's flying below the radar, um, but the governor actually convened uh, a multi-agency, uh, multi-stakeholder process where we started back actually in May um, talking. And so the, the first problem, you don't just come up with a solution in a month or two. <laughs> That's, we've probably figured that out by now. <laughs> Um, so really, we started in May, and it's Department of Revenue, the university, uh, you know, the consensus estimating group for other revenues, the business councils. What we are first trying to do is identify what this means for the state. So the way I'd say is, how big is the hole? I mean, are you looking at a pit, or are you looking at the Grand Canyon? Because the solution really depends on what the problem is. And so you really have to identify what is the problem and what are going to be the consequences of that. Once you understand that, then you can start to identify, okay, what do we need to address with policy? So the way I put it is, if, you know, if it's a small hole, you build a bridge. If it's, a lar if it's the Grand Canyon, you start talking about helicopters. So it, very different. And so that's what's going on right now. Uh, the governor's office has been quiet about it, in part because there's nothing to show yet. It takes a while. We're working through what are the local community impacts for various scenarios. What are the revenue potential, Im the impacts to revenues? How is that going to affect public services? And then there's a whole other side of the 
question that needs to be asked, which is, what do we want to have, and this could be open to any state, what do you want your state to look like? What are the necessary public services that you need? Or what if, if you're at a city or town that's being affected by this? What is it that you want to preserve or expand in that community? What, is, what are the revenue needs? And then how could you build backwards? How could you ensure that those are, are put into place? And that's really what's going on in Wyoming. Uh, I expect that you'll probably hear more from that. Uh, I know at the Revenue Committee meeting in November, we're supposed to, hopefully we'll have it done, we're supposed to show the immediate results. So what are we looking at? What kind of hole is there? What are the revenue consequences? But back to the denial, there's also an education piece here, which is to say, look, um, this is the revenue hole you're looking at, state legislators. You can't cut your way out of this. Uh, at a certain point, there's a minimum level of public services that need to be offered, and that's going to cost this much. And so now you need to talk about revenue alternatives, and that's not a very popular conversation. <laughs> All right, one more question, and we've gone long, but uh, um, Grace, yeah. I, I was actually curious, so a lot of reporters here uh, with the upcoming presidential election next year, Trump, uh, when he ran his first election campaign, was all about the coal miners. A lot of us are going to be going back to coal country. You just outlined the economic tr trends. What are questions or story frames you might suggest for us reporters that go beyond kind of the, you know, the economics say this, and here's this community that uh, is tied to their political ideology? What's a way to reframe it or ask a different question that, that kind of goes beyond that? That's a good question. That's um, an excellent question. <laughs> I think w one thing we saw last time, and I've also heard on um, podcasts that are more at a national level, are really talking about people in, in rural America as if they don't understand the problem. And um, I think there is a lot of education to be done, and that's on both sides, and I'm sure you, um, you would agree. Uh, but it, it felt really like kind of othering, you know, this us and them, like Robert was talking about earlier. And so I'm sure you wouldn't do that, but um, I think that's one really important thing about this next cycle, especially at where, how the media deals with it, is just um, you know, maybe interviewing these people about providing for their families and what kind of changes that they're going to have to go through. Um, they feel like they, you know, they had this, this great thing going for them where they were making a lot of money um, in this um, industry that was stable, and all of a sudden the rug's been pulled out from under them. Of course, Industry shifts shifts happen a lot. This we didn't get to the question of what's this energy transition, but there've been a lot of transitions, right? A lot of industry transitions, and this whole country is moving to a service industry, um, and so there are going to be more transitions. What's going to happen when we have autonomous vehicles, and what's going to so it you know it definitely behooves us to do more planning. But I guess I would say um, there's there's this sort of um, gratitude that we have to have for these people who've taken really difficult jobs to provide us with electricity for many, many years. And so maybe starting at, at that point, um, and then maybe talking more about the personal s stories. And um, I think Trump talked about a million coal jobs or something like that, and there were never a million coal jobs um, in this country. Uh, and right now, you know, coal plants and coal mines maybe have about 75,000 jobs each in them or something like that. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but there's a U.S. Energy Employment Report that, that has that out. And solar jobs are, mo are more than that, are more than the combination. 
Um, but I, I think I would frame it in terms of um, jobs and individuals, and then economic diversification and, and hope in their communities. So there is, there are, you know, there are people who are in, at least in Craig and Hayden, they have a plan, and Craig, they have these, this eight-step plan that's amazing, and they, the community came up with it themselves, and there are all these things that they want to do, and they do need funding, but I feel like there's hope, and there's, um, and, and they really need to focus on um, just d diversifying. Uh, so that's one thing, but, I was yeah. just going to chime in. Yeah, I mean, I was going to chime in for a second to, I mean, talk to people who have made the transition. I mean, we've, we've uh, talked about a lot of the good things that are happening, um, but under the surface, I think that the gentleman in the back sort of alluded to this with the denial thing. Um, if you and and I, I feel like I have to say this because I'm probably the closest to some of the coal miners. I've been in a number of coal mines. These uh, sorts of things are vastly unpopular. Um, uh, retrainings and yeah. bailout, and you, yes. you said that too. These are hardworking people. Um, I, you would know this, Rob, but uh, the wages uh, at a coal company in Gillette are, I'm sure, like two or three times what the uh, what the average is for Campbell County. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so in fact, they drag the average up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so um, you know, I don't know, guys that uh, and. You know, it's a hard question to ask because there's all these nitty-gritty issues. Um, it's tough to talk with someone about, uh, you know, the cost of natural gas, and it's not really regulation. It's much easier to paint this enemy of, um, you know, it's it's Democrats versus Republicans, mm -hmm. it's Clinton versus Trump, uh, or something like that. But maybe people who are making the transition, um, at some point, these jobs will go away. So you have to make you. You, you make a decision uh, to, to sort of change tack now and diversify and get a different job. You might take uh, a pay cut for a while, but uh, you know, have, you, ha have some of these people gotten into a better place? Um, the mining industry over the last few years has been really volatile with mines opening and shutting, and it doesn't really matter what mine you're at. You can't pick like the best mine that's lowest on the cost curve. It's not really... Um, you know, even those guys that work for the best assets have seen uh, their jobs come and go. So, um, I don't know, some of those issues would be interesting to touch on. Rob? So, quick story. In the Pacific IRP process, we have stakeholders. Um, instead of talking all the technical modeling, they got off into this strange conversation one day in one of the calls where an, an environmental group, and I, I'll leave them nameless, their representative there, argued that Pacific Corps had been deficient in the economic justice uh, taking care of their workers because they had not told the workers early enough that this was coming. And um, her argument was basically that had you told them early enough, they could have sold their houses before the prices start falling, and then they would have been fine. Which was a really naive, so the, what I'm getting at here, and, and who came to the defense of Pacific Corps, because the Pacific Corps vice president who's there is usually in charge of models is like, uh. <laughs> and the person who came to the defense of Pacific Corps was actually the manager of the Kemmer Mine which is likely to close when they close that plant. And he said, no, they've been telling us for a while now we're moving away. We just haven't listened. So going forward, I think these 
what is happening to the people. Uh, the, typically, we, we kind of hear this coverage where this needs to happen, and it's good for society. We need to move away from carbon. What has not been talked about is, you know, the benefits are wide, but the costs are very narrow and concentrated. And so what I think we really need, you know, just as a general theme, is how we can deal with that. And, and really, there's a social choice. I mean, this is not uh, one that you can solve with data. This is going to require a social choice. What's fair? In what places are people willing to help their neighbors? How can you help them? And um, what are you willing to accept as policies? Because in different places, people have different attitudes towards that. The other thing, and, and Suzanne's made a great point of this, and I completely agree, uh, what goes on has to be determined by the local communities. They have a stake in this. It's them. They don't want, you know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Rarely works, right? <laughs> So what you really need to see is, is, is positive forward thinking. And the, and the first part of that, though, is that the communities have to accept that this is happening. Suzanne mentioned Headwaters. Um, there's a woman up at uh, Montana State. Her name's Julia Haggerty, and she runs a group up there. And one of the primary um, determinants of success or not having success in this is having a community that actually has a forward-looking plan that actually within the plan accepts that this change is happening. They don't double down on the same industry or, or whatever. That's tough, though, because it really does mean that you have to, to change your culture. And it's also about the threat and the cost. And, and of course, that whenever there's a threat, that's a negative thing. So to, to finally okay, say... We Are we getting kicked out? Okay. So I would just say that if you want to uh, cover this, it's really the positive parts of this, like focusing on what do people want to do as opposed to what the threat is to them, might also help this along. Sorry about that.